0: Hello and welcome back to the TTL, to Tani Talks Life, the show where we talk a topic per session with some practical lessons. Brought to you by the Tani Talks podcast. Tonight's topic is: What's your area of expertise? All of my podcasts of the Tani Talks Parsha, Tani Talks Perkayavos, Tani Talks Staff, Tani Talks Occupational Therapy OT, and this live show are hosted by JewishPodcasts.fm. Come join us on this amazing platform, JewishPodcasts.fm, super easy. The shows are also on different podcast forums, including iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Jewish Podcasts sister app of Yidpod the Jewish podcast app service, downloaded on the App Store today. Don't forget to support and follow the Tani Talks podcast. Join us in the dream and the vision, one 1S slash fund 2S slash the Tani Talks podcast. Donate. Help us grow the dream, grow bigger, better, and do more with your support and your help, hopefully aiming for being live on the radio one day. As a side note, a great way to hear podcasts, including a new dedicated channel for the Tani Talks podcast, is on the kosher, clean, internet Jewish radio of Naki Radio. We have the Naki Radio home with the remote control. We love it. It is awesome, fantastic. It is an awesome device with an awesome website. You love radio. You love Jewish music. How about combining them with podcasts as well, a beautiful, beautiful interface on the portal.nakiradio.com go get your radio today what are you waiting for nakiradio.com Big news, the Parsha Show, the TTP, is now hosted by the Nacham Siegel Network, Bling every Thursday night at 10 p.m. You could listen to Nacham Siegel live and hear the Tani Talks Parsha for the week, 10 p.m. on NachamSiegel.com. You could also download the NSN app. You could also listen to Nacham Siegel Network on the JM and the AM station on Anaki Radio as well. The shear should be for the Rafua and Yeshua of anyone who wants... Anyone who needs, and of course, I am reachable anytime at MaximumTEE at Yahoo.com. Expertise. What does that word really mean? According to Google, it means an expert skill or knowledge in a particular field. An example of expertise is a master gardener's knowledge of gardening. Expertise is often defined as elite peak, or exceptionally high levels of performance on a particular task or within a given domain. One who achieves this status is called an expert, or some related terms, such as virtuoso, master, maven, prodigy, or genius. Do you know that he is a master of virtuoso of the violin? Do you know he's a prodigy on the piano? Do you know he's a genius on the guitar? But the question is, who is really an expert at anything? Who really has a handle on their field or their line of work? How does one go about even doing such things? As Pesach, Passover, is coming upon us very soon, we should think about how we became individuals with goals and ideas and mission, with certain job, proclivities, and talents. When we left Mitzrayim, when we left Egypt, we went from a nation of slaves to a nation of individuals. Ravari explained in in my years in Israel that we actually left on different levels. We weren't just redeemed physically, but we also were taken out of the slave mentality. Psychologically, we also were taken out from an emotional standpoint. We were also taken out from an economic standpoint and a nation standpoint. Really corresponding to the four Lashonot of Gaula, the four aspects of redemption. We were enslaved in many aspects, four major aspects, and we were redeemed in four major aspects. So when we were free, we were taken out... We went and we became a nation of individuals. Although the Levites, the Levim, were around in Mitzrayim in Egypt, and there were the elders of the Zikaneim, the leaders of the people, by and large, most were building and most were enslaved. Once we were freed by Hashem through all the manners that He brought us through, through His agents, then we were able to go about and accomplish things in our own ways through real freedom. When the Mishkan was being built in the desert, in the Midbar, Hashem tasked two kids, two young teenagers, with the goal in mind of making the Mishkan and making its different artifacts and its different vessels and its different items. B'tzalel ben Uri and ahaliah ben Achisamach were charged to make these items were charged to be in charge to be heading up the tasks. They were probably thirteen at the time, but people don't think about that. They really weren't so old at the time, and they were the ones charged with being involved in the Mishgun. A great task, a tremendous task, but they were just kids in some level. But they were artisans. They were skilled individuals with expertise in this area. They were Chachamlev, they had the knowledge of the heart, the knowledge of the skill, the knowledge in their mind. Throughout history different people were needed in different roles, as the Canaan in Egypt, and the desert, the Samhedrin sitting in the Bez in the the Beznagado. The shoemakers, the tanners, the water carriers, the builders, the charity collectors, the teachers. Everyone has their role. Everyone has their skills, but how do we go about looking at this area of life? How do we build skill and expertise in a certain area? It all takes practice, 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 and more practice, like learning an instrument Like the guitar, such as the guitar which I proudly play, Baruch Hashem. Things in life take a lot of work and a lot of learning and a lot of patience. When studying for a degree, we need undergraduate coursework and we need graduate studies. When we train to be in different professions, often we need internships and volunteer experience. So in anything in life. It takes work and a lot of practice. Find your mission and work at it. Do something you love. Work hard to fine-tune your skill and your passion into something on an expert level. Serial Yochevda-Riegler points out on H.com, after six months of working for the company, it's time for your evaluation. You walk into the boardroom where three designer suit-clad personnel managers are sitting behind a mahogany desk. The one on the left scans your file, looks up at you, accusingly, and says, I see here that you did not report for work at 9 a.m. one time during this entire period. The woman in the middle shakes her head and remarks, This is a Fortune 500 company. Instead of a jacket and a tie, you report for work wearing jeans. The man on the right stares at the papers in his hand and says, Grimly, our surveillance cameras show that you spend less than 10% of your working hours at your desk. The rest of the time, you're walking around the building. The first evaluator shoots the question, Do you have anything to say for yourself? Yes. You reply with confidence. I was hired as the night watchman. According to the great 16th century Kabbalistic master known as the Arizal, no one has ever or will ever come into this world with the exact same mission as yours. The light you are meant to shine into the world is yours alone. As individual as your fingerprint, as personal as your voice print. Your mission can be interpersonal, such as counseling couples with troubled marriages, or scholarly, such as researching ancient Chinese culture or an expression of your talent, such as painting landscapes or playing the violin. It can be concrete, such as establishing a home for Alzheimer's patients, or abstract, such as manifesting in the world the divine attribute of truth or patience. It could be on a large scale, such as inaugurating the recycling system in your city, or on a small scale, such as caring for a child with a handicap with joy. You may have two, or at most three, different missions, which can be consecutive after finishing one job you start another, or simultaneous at the same time. Yet even if there are 500 marriage counselors in your city, your particular approach and way of helping people is an There is something special about your job, even if 500 other people have the same job. Not one of us can be replaced, ever. Imagine you're an undercover agent sent into Iran. You've had years of training, had two vital contacts in Tehran, and are equipped with the latest high-tech spy gadgetry. Only one thing is lacking. You have no idea what your mission is, what the goal of the stationing in Iran is. You're like shooting in the dark. Many of us go through life like that. We follow the route laid out by society, going to college, finding a job, getting married, raising a family, but with no clear sense of the mission entrusted to us. We're pulled in many different directions, feeling compromised in what we do and guilty for what we don't do. Identifying our mission is, according to Rabbi Aryeh Naveen, the first step in leading a life of vibrancy and joy. When you intersect with the, your life's purpose, he explains, you feel excitement. I can tell you when I started the podcast, I felt excitement. And even now, I feel excitement. Getting on Naki Radio, I felt a tremendous jolt of excitement. Getting on Acham Siegel Network for the Parsha Show, a tremendous jolt of excitement. Being involved in my jobs, my, my extra job on the side, tremendous excitement being involved in different aspects of life tremendous excitement but if we don't have that excitement we might not be fulfilling the life's purpose interjecting into our life we might be missing that excitement we might be lacking that excitement we have to find the mission and has to coincide with your life's purpose what are you going to do what is your Dalit almost what are you going to prepare for life and we've talked about this before but it always bears repeating again Finding yourself in purpose gives major excitement. What is your plan for how you propose to use the life God gave you and God gives you? The CEO is not going to dole out a million dollar budget to an employee who doesn't have a carefully worked out proposal. We are used to praying for life, health, and livelihood as ends in themselves, and the divine accounting, however, of our life is Health and livelihood are simply the tools, the high-tech spy gadgetry that will enable you to accomplish your mission. Rabbi Naveen offers two methods for discovering your mission. Ask yourself and write it down. What were the five or ten most pleasurable moments in my entire life? Again, what were the five or ten most pleasurable moments in my entire life? Then ask yourself, if I inherited a billion dollars and had six hours a day of discretionary time, what would I do with the time and money? If I inherited a billion dollars and had six hours a day of discretionary time to myself, what would I do with the time and money? So my answer is very easy, very simple for myself. I would host a live radio show, period. I also would maybe publish that book, that kid's book that I was really trying to get off the ground, but really had lots of falls in that. But what were the five or ten most pleasurable moments in your life? Being on the radio in college was fantastic, and podcasting is fantastic, but live radio for me is like Menas Shammai and Lahavda, Lahavda, So if I had the billion dollars, I had the six hours a day, you betcha, I would probably do that. But not everybody can answer these two questions, and not everybody is in the frame of mind and in the proper aspect of their life to answer this question because many people are using wrong skills in wrong areas with wrong expertise. Some people don't know what they should be doing in life and not asking themselves this question. the most pleasurable moments in your life, if you had the billion dollars and the time and the day, what would you do? When answering the first question about the most pleasurable moments in your life. Eliminate the universal transcendent, transcendent transcendent moments, Excuse me, such as witnessing the beauty of nature or listening to music. Your mission, of course, may have to do with nature or music, but on a much more individual level than the high all people feel when they see the Grand Canyon. Although your mission may require hard work or genuine sacrifice, when you're engaged in your life's mission, you experience, as Rabbi Niven puts it, this feels so good, that I could do it all day long. Do you really feel like that in the law firm? Do you really feel like that in the accounting firm? Do you really feel like that sitting crunching numbers in the middle of tax season, you could do this all day long? Granted, there are people that do feel that and that could definitely be their mission, but many of us can't answer that question. Can you feel like this is so good that you could do it all day long? For me, for podcasting, for radio, yes, I could do it all day long, happily. But if a person can't do that, a person can't be involved in that, do you really feel so good that you could do it all day long? Remembering Rabbi Niman's advice, the author suggests take a half hour twice a week and sit down with a pen and paper and just start brainstorming. Write down whatever comes to your mind, what the first steps would be, and what you would want it to look like in the end, and ask the Almighty, ask Hashem for help in making it happen. If you're on the way, you want to get on the way, Hashem will help you. I had no idea where the shows were going, but I had a very strong feeling that it was put in my mind by Hashem, that it was a really good idea, and Hashem would lead me along the way. Baruch Hashem five seasons later for the OT, five seasons later for Pirkei two seasons later for legit aspect of Parsham, and a season into the season of the Daf, and over a season later in the life Hashem really leads me along the path. And it takes persistence and perseverance, reaching out to people, reaching out to people, Bar Hashem, we finally connected with the Nacham Sigel Network. Hashem, we connected with Naki Radio, but things like that take perseverance, take persistence, take stubbornness, which we talked about on a different lecture, but we have to keep going at it, and it takes work. Make sure to think where you want to go, Hashem will take you on the road, Hashem will help make it happen. He can give you whatever He deems you should have, and then see if the opportunity to take the next step emerges. The Creator Hashem has outfitted you with a set of aptitudes, talents, and interests perfectly suited to what you are charged with accomplishing. By following your inclinations and abilities, you may already have found your mission. Sometimes your mission is deposited in the lap. The National Taste Sacks Association, for example, was founded by the parents of children suffering from Taste Sacks. The parents' daunting challenge metamorphosed into their life's mission. If your mission is not yet clear to you, take as many months as you need. Take a half hour between now all the way till Rosh Hashanah and reflect on the question, what do I really want to do with my life? Again, what do I really want to do with my life? Do you really want to sit and crunch numbers all day? Do you really want to sit behind a booth as a bank teller all day? Do you really want to be a toll collector your whole life? What do you really want to do with your life? Perhaps you work full-time developing software for Microsoft, but you've always felt a tug to write a book about social media addiction. Perhaps your greatest pleasure is tending your vegetable garden in suburban Detroit, but you've always dreamed of living on an agricultural settlement in Israel. Such inner urges may be whisperings from God, hints from God, the secret message from headquarters disclosing your true mission. Clarity about your mission dissipates guilt for all the worthy endeavors you're not engaged in. Once you realize you're in this world to develop a new healing modality for autism, you won't feel guilty you're not volunteering for the local soup kitchen or marching on the UN to protest anti-Israel discrimination. Everyone has their purpose and their calling. Everyone has their expertise. Knowing your individual mission validates your life and releases you from the pernicious habit of comparing yourself to others. Jonas Salk's mark on the world may seem as deep as a crater while once taking care of their handicapped brother may seem like a fingernail impression. but from a spiritual perspective, the light that one is shining into the world is exactly the light he came here to radiate. Another point to think about is that fulfilling your individual life's mission does not exempt you from global missions and global responsibilities, such as supporting your family or raising your children. Starting an outreach center for the elderly may have to wait until your children are grown. Writing that book on social media addiction may have to be tucked into your few spare hours after your full-time job, after your kids are sleeping. Don't worry, the God who assigned you your mission will make sure you have everything you need, including time now or later To fulfill it. So, when we think about how we became free as a nation this week with Pesach coming upon us, a free people this week, think about how to go about utilizing your freedom to accomplish your real mission. Utilizing your freedom to accomplish how to be an expert in your mission in what you're supposed to do in life. And understand the real chayrut, real freedom, to accomplish real work in this world, and real sanctifying God's name in the best and most expert way you can, as what we're really here to do in this life. I want to talk some source talk about expertise. And then we have some interesting sources and interesting stories as well, but we're switching it up a little bit. So let's go to the sources for a little bit before we continue on. Pirkei Avos points out to us in Parag Mishnah Gimel. He used to say, He used to say, Do not despise any man. Do not discriminate against anything, for there is no man that has not his hour. There is no thing that has not its place. Everyone has their purpose. Everyone has their mission. Everyone has their expertise. It has to be found. It has to be cultivated. It has to be worked at. But everyone has their 15 minutes of fame, if you will, on this earth. Everyone has what to come. Tribute. Everyone has what to give. So don't ever put down anyone's profession or anyone's life choice of what they want to do with their talents in life because every aspect has what there could be done in this world. The Shulchan Aruch points out in Yorodeah Most are familiar with slaughtering and the slaughtering of a, of a butcher and his expertise is known as well because even the butcher has to really know what he's doing. You know, it took a smicha of course, last year, Baruch Hashem, I got through it. It took the whole year to get through the different sections. And one of the aspects we talked about was about shchita. was about slaughtering and how to not mix milk and meat. When it comes to preparing meat, there's a lot, a lot involved. And even with the the year program, and even if you're in a three-year program, four-year program, it's very intense. A lot of expertise is needed, and only that sholchet who really, really studies knows what he's doing and knows how to go about it. The Gemara points out in Bruch 63b, In accordance with the opinion of Rava, Rava said one must always study Torah, And gain expertise in it, and only then analyze and delve into it, because we need to gain our expertise in life, in Torah and Mahabdel and other secular matters. If we can delve our efforts to help the world, and be good at it, our abilities can be used for great purposes. The Gemara talks about in Sanhedrin sixty-seven B, one of the sages talks to another sage, excuse me, and says, this is not your field of expertise. Take your statements to the tractates of Nagayim and Oholot, and that's where your expertise lies. Because each sage, even in the Gemara, each sage had what they were really experts at, what they were really proficient at, and there were some aspects that they were not. And they had to understand where their expertise lay and where it did not. Gemara Chagiga 14a talks about the counselor, referring to one who knows how to intercalate years and determine months due to his expertise in the phases of the moon and the calculation of the yearly cycle. Even gematras, even numbers, even intercalating months and years takes a lot of expertise, takes a lot of knowledge. Not everyone can do it. The court of Hillel, I believe the second was the one that made the calendar that we currently use for thousands of years in the future. They had a brilliance and an ability, an uncanny ability to make calculations based on the moon and based on the earth and everything like that without having any calculators or anything like that back then. And they made the calendar for all the future generations. How amazing expertise they had themselves to be able to do such a thing. Rashi points out in Bereshis, in Peric Mem Vav Pasik Lamed Dalit, when you go tell him, that you have no expertise in other work, he'll distance you from himself and he will settle you there. Talking about the idea how there is expertise in certain areas, if you don't have an expertise in some area, distance yourself from that area. Erevan points out the Gemara 67a, Rav Shesh's fluency and expertise were such that Rav Chisam would be filled with awe in his presence. Because some people have a clear expertise and knowledge. Others are more subtle and hidden. As long as you have it, and you can use it. The world will be all the better. The Gomar points out in Bechal road 48. With regard to blemishes listed in the chapter, Ilam was expert in blemishes of the firstborn, and them in Yavna, and the sages deferred to his expertise. The sages deferred to his expertise, because this sage was an expert in blemishes. Each sage had what to contribute. So can you imagine... When all the sages would come together, would learn together, if this sage was expert at Aholos, and this sage was expert at blemishes, this sage was expert at Shrita, everyone comes together, brings their expertise, every area could be covered. How wonderful. The Gemara points out in Chul in 133b, A priest, even if he sits in the shop, would not question the practices of the salesman, do it as modesty, but would defer to the seller's expertise. Even a priest, even a coin, knows that when it comes to a sale, the salesman has the expertise. I was involved in this in the second job, It has lot, lots of aspects. But the people who are real sellers, real advertisers, really know the business how to sell, I have to defer to their expertise because they really know what they're talking about. In life, we have to defer to those people in their fields who have the expertise. Gamora points out in sign 5b. He had a high level of practical expertise in the matter, not just to have the expertise, but to have it in a practical manner in the field. That's the idea of fieldwork in different professions to give real hands-on experience for expertise. Gamar points on Gittin, 66B. If you say it means writing a bill of divorce, they must write the actual bill of divorce, which works out well because a certain degree of expertise is necessary in order to write it. No layman, no Joe Schmo can write the Gitten can write the get. Only someone whose actual expertise can write it because they need to have the experience in the matter. Gamara points out in Haraius 12b, when Rav Papa heard the Bryce, he arose and kissed him on his head, gave him his daughter to marry due to his appreciation for his expertise in Torah study. Again, understanding and appreciating the person's expertise in an area, especially Torah. Radak points out on Beratius, Perak 10 after the deluge, after the flood, he acquired additional expertise, noach, in combining different strains of grapes and making wine out of the grapes. And Sefer Midos points out by the Mohel, Mohel needs to have expertise. God forbid he lacks expertise. The circumcision can, God forbid, cause the infant much harm. Because it's important to remember that expertise is great. But expertise in an area can be used to help or to hinder to do good or to harm, God forbid. To build families or destroy them, God forbid. Noah had an expertise, but he used it for grapes. He used it for the vitner, for the vineyard. And what happened? He became drunk. And his children, according to the commentators, were not involved in nice things with him. Let's put it at that. Because you have to use your expertise in a good area to do good, to help others, to sanctify God's name. So if you're a vintner... Use it to produce beautiful wine that could be used at the Seder, that could be used at the partum Sud only. Don't use it to get drunk on the first thing you do after the flood. Don't use it in the wrong way. You could be a wonderful surgeon, but if you don't have expertise as a mohel, don't be a mohel. Use it in the right way. Sanctify the world. Sanctify God's name. Do good in the world. The Sipurim Ma'asiyot points out that the simple man learned shoemaking. Since he was a simple person, he had to study the trade a great deal until he got it. Even then, he did not have complete expertise in the craft. Even a shoemaker has to study the craft, has to learn the craft, probably has to be an apprenticeship in the craft to really learn the expertise. Rabbi Bahaya points out in Vayikram, Moshe had already acquired expertise in the procedure, putting up and taking down the mishkan, being involved for seven days, and then Aharon took over on day eight. Having performed it for seven days, Moshe got major expertise, but it took seven days till it was really expertise to train it over and to give it over to Aharon. Rav Moshe points out in his response in the care of the critically ill in the Igros Moshe, Choshe, Mishpah, with full cognizance that every invasive treatment involves great dangers, the expertise of a well-trained surgeon should provide the confidence needed to undertake the recommended surgery, understanding that they have to have the right expertise. The Akedah Yitzchak points out in spite of visible symptoms of psychological illness, the doctor undertakes to cure some, and same, requires even more expertise than the one who cures physical ills because a psychologist psychiatrist has to see things inside, has to see things in the mind. It takes a different type of expertise to be a therapist than to be someone who is a doctor treating physical maladies. Contemporary law problems point out that the physician by virtue of his training and professional expertise is uniquely qualified to perform such services in situations which require medical attention. And the Sitzit Chachama point out that the urging is a result of special expertise needed to harvest olives from the olive treetop branches to crush them in a mortar so there be no sediment. Not just me or any Joe can make olive oil. You have to know what you're doing. I don't want there to be sediment in the olive oil. I don't want there to be pieces. But someone who really works at it was involved for years. They know how to do it down to a fine olive, down to a fine degree to make the most beautiful olive oil possible. Expertise oftentimes takes a lot of work, a lot of practice, a lot of patience. If you have a field to go into or a talent that really calls to you, really sparks a passion of yours, make sure to persevere and keep at it, as it might take time to master it. Contemporary Halakha problems also points out that a tradesman is presumed an expertise which enables him to distinguish between the diverse species, and may be relied upon to remove the non-kosher fish. The treasures hidden in the sand, the objections point out that the Ishmaelites possessed a secret process that enabled cotton to be dyed with animal dye. The Turkish Empire's expertise in dyeing has a long history. Because each culture, each society has what to contribute, has what to have expertise, in, and then we can learn from all of them, and we can learn ourselves where to do our expertise, where to find it. Hulon points out in 4a, Rebilezer prohibits the consumption of a matzah of a Samaritan on Passover. Pesach coming right upon us, how apropos to hear about Pesach, because the Samaritans are not experts in the details of mitzvahs like Jews. Do not know the precise nature of leaven prohibited by the Torah. But we do, we have to have expertise in that. We get it from the hashkachos that we trust, the hand shmur matzah, the machine shmur matzah, people who have expertise in making the matzah. Kedushim points out in 10, Yochanan ben Bagbag sent a message to Rabbi Yehuda ben Bessir in the city of Nitzivin. I heard about you that you say that the daughter of a non-priest betrothed to a priest may partake of Truma. Rabbi Yehuda ben Basir sent back the reply to him, Do not... You not say, so I know about you, you're an expert in many areas of Torah. Do you not know how to teach halacha based on an affordatory inference based on a kava homer? Talking about how he has expertise as well because different people are well versed in different things and feel a calling to different matters. I myself love perkei I love Navi. And I love agotic parts of the taf. Harder ones like technical aspects that we have a lot in Yavamos nowadays are very difficult for me. But I love Pirkei I love Navi, and of course the Agadita. Others may love the technical aspects of halacha. A lover, a lo- another may be a lover of musr. To each their own, but fine-tune and practice whatever is your own preference. The Gemara points out in Yuma 38a, they taught in Abraisa. The craftsmen of the house of Garmu were expert in the preparation of the showbread. They did not want to teach others the secret of its production, which was not so great. The sages dismissed them and sent for and brought craftsmen from Alexandria in Egypt, a large city with many experts. And those craftsmen knew how to bake like the members of the House of Garmo do, but they did not know how to remove the bread from the oven like they did. So eventually, they had to go back to the House of Garmo. But really, they didn't want to share their secrets. They could go here and there and, and, and debate back and forth if it was good or not. I happen to think it wasn't so good to share their secrets so other people could help out. But in general, it shows that this house was experts in this aspect of the showbread. Each person has their expertise, has their craft, has their ability, has their perfection in their area. What is your area of expertise? What is your mission? What is your purpose? What can you do to make a difference in the world and fine-tune it to the nth degree? And the Gemara points out, finally, in Baruchos 46b, the exilarch are Although you are an elderly sage, the Persians are more expert than you with regard to their acquired etiquette at meals. The Persian custom is that when there are two divans on which they would recline, the greater of the two people reclines first. The person's second to him in importance reclines on the divan above him. Alongside his head, when there are three divans, the greatest of the three reclines on the middle divan. When we can utilize our abilities and help those around us, our expertise is put to good use and the world benefits at large. We'll be and Goldson points out on com that experts know that they are experts. This does not mean necessarily that they lack humility. We actually talked about this at length last week in the Parsha show. Humble appreciation, you could find it. On all podcast forms and you could find it in the NSN archives, God willing, and you could also find it on the key radio on our channel, on the Tony Talks Podcast channel to the Tony Talks Parsha sub channel. So when it talks about someone who's expert, it doesn't mean that they are lacking humility. They know that they're an expert. Moshe knew he was the greatest prophet who ever lived or ever would live. It literally was written in the Torah. Indeed, God instructed him to record this fact in the Torah, the same Torah that also testifies to Moshe, having been the most humble man who ever walked the earth, who ever lived. In contemporary times, Albert Pujols, Itzhak Perlman, Steven Spielberg, and Warren Buffett all know that they are among the greatest ever in their respective fields. Awareness of one's own ability certainly can lead to arrogance if one starts to believe that he possesses intrinsically greater value as a human being by virtue of his talents and achievements, or if he begins to believe himself incapable of error. Even if you are the foremost expert in your field, make sure not... To be haughty. be humble, but appreciate your gifts, as we talked about last week on the Parsha show. Keep two papers in your pockets. One that says, Bishvili nivra olam. The world was created for me, just for me. Bishvili nivra haolam. The whole world was made for me, my sake. While the other paper in your pocket you must keep says, Ani I am but dust and ashes. And this way you can use your gifts, appreciate your gifts, and... Acknowledge your gifts but also and your expertise, but also allows you not to become haughty, but to stay humble because of it. Rabbi Dr. Mayer points out on H.com, when it comes to a job or profession you're really good at, you can be grateful that you have a talent and ability which is much in demand, not only among your clients, but also among friends and worthy organizations. Of course, you may choose to share these talents with others on a voluntary basis, but it is wrong. for others to pressure you to do so beyond what is affordable for you and customary for business owners, and you should feel no embarrassment in politely refusing your requests for inappropriate freebies. Use your skills. Be compensated for them, but don't overstretch yourself to an area that is not in your expertise or your field. Rabbi Tversky points out on H.com, the Mishnah points out in Pirkei Avos, but as I was accustomed to say, do not be scornful of any person. We talked about this earlier. Do not be disdainful of anything. For you have no person without his hour, you have nothing without its place, as we mentioned before. Rav Shomdov of Lubavitch showed great, appreci- uh, great affection for the simple folk. One time a chassid who was a diamond merchant asked the rabbi what virtues he saw in these unlearned people. The rabbi asked the chassid wh- whether he happened to have any of his merchandise with him. Whereupon he showed the rabbi a packet of diamonds. The rabbi pointed to a rather large gem and said, this is indeed a beautiful diamond. The chassid smiled and said, no, rabbi, it happens to be full of defects. But the rabbi said, but it is more beautiful than the other stones. The chassid explained, it happens to be larger than the other stones, but because it has defects, which can be seen with the magnifying glass, its value is much less. Now here, he said, is a smaller stone that may not appear as brilliant as the large one, but is a perfect stone. And is very valuable you see rabbis know the value of diamonds one must have expertise i understand rabbi shalom dov said but the same thing is true of knowing the value of people where one must also have great expertise there's no person who should be scorned you just have to be an expert realize that each person has what to teach us and what to give us from their own areas of skill their own knowledge and their own expertise. as Ben been as it tells us in Pirkei Vos Talat Aleph, Eizahu Chacham Halomeid Mikol Adam, or Mikol Ha'adam, from the whole person, not just every person, but the whole of the person, who is wise, he who learns from every single person. There's what to learn from every person in life. ever also has an idea of not putting a stumbling block in front of someone else. When we think about how you shouldn't put a block in front of a blind person, person who can't see because they'll stumble over, but it doesn't just literally mean a block by the person who can't see. It means don't give bad advice or advice in an area that you know nothing about. In fact, Dr. Bonchai points out on H.com, whoever misleads the blind, Lifna Iver, Rosh says one who is blind regarding a particular matter and he offers him bad advice. Rashi takes this first in a metaphorical sense, that is not one who is physically blind, but one who is ignorant regarding a particular issue. The prohibition is against intentionally giving bad advice to someone leading him astray, since he cannot adequately evaluate the advice as he is blind in this particular area of expertise. This is similar to Rashi's comment on Vayikram, in Test, it speaks of misleading a blind man on the way. If we take the verse of face value, meaning misguiding a, misguiding a blind man as he walks on the road, that is an act done in full public view, and would deviate from the list of hidden transgressions recorded in this section of accursed behaviors. No one can see another man's intentions, so that when he gives his misleading advice, he can always claim that he did so innocently with no devious intent. In this sense, it is a hidden transgression. Take the verse at face value. The man actually misled a blind man on the way. Nevertheless, this can rightfully be considered a hidden transgression, since the perpetrator can always defend himself by saying he did so innocently. He didn't realize he was guiding him wrongly. Nobody can know another person's intention. It remains hidden. But the point to think about is to be careful to stay within the dolid almost of what you know well, and really well. Don't overstep the boundaries of your knowledge and skill for others. Rabbi Kleiman points out on AISH.com, whatever your profession, if you know it well, you can quickly assess a colleague's expertise. Similarly, it's a known fact that recovering alcoholics are the best detectors of closet alcoholics because I've been there, done that. So you should use your skill. You can use your skill to help others from a comfortable knowledge of the area that you know. Recently, in the past few weeks, L'hamdul, Rabbi Kanavsky passed away, and he was a leading, leading godolador, a leading Torah sage that was actually very quiet in his humbleness and very quiet in his life. H.com points out with Rabbi Simmons about Rabbi Kanievsky. Imagine discovering at an earliest age a passion for an endeavor for which you have an abundance of natural talent and skill. Add to that the head start of growing up surrounded by the giants in your chosen field who closely mentor your progress. For decades, thousands flocked to your home seeking sagely advice and you produced dozens of scholarly volumes in the entire breadth and depth of your chosen field. Add to that a single-minded focus and unwavering devotion to your area of expertise. Day after day, year after year for 94 years, that was the life of Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, the undisputed prince of Torah, Sar HaTorah, who was buried in the central Israel city of Ben Brak, as nearly one million people converged to pay last respects. He never departed the borders of Israel, became a lifetime advocate for aliyah, encouraging people to move to Israel. Rav Chaim was a private citizen, leading no synagogue or yeshiva, with no official teaching or rabbinic position. For years, he occupied a nondescript seat in Kol Chazon Ish, conducting uninterrupted in-depth research and writing. As a young man, he considered taking a paid position, but his father said, your contribution is to sit and learn, Period. Rav Chaim never wavered from that advice, becoming this generation's paradigm of Hasmada, diligent, non-stop Torah study. Inside Rav Chaim's modest home at 23 Rashbam Street, every room and hallway was lined with bookshelves crammed with thousands of Torah commentaries. On Shabbat, on Shabbos, Rav Chaim would play a game with his children. They would name a book title, and Rav Chaim would educate and entertain them by immediately identifying its precise location among the vimes filling every inch of wall space. Ravchai maintained a breathtaking schedule, awaking at 2 a.m. for a rigorous 20 hour day study of Kol Torah Kula, the entire biblical and rabbinic corpus, including Tanakh, Mishnah, Talmud Bavli, Talmud Yerushalmi, the Babylonian Jerusalem, Talmuds, and Midrashim, Zohar, and all the primary works of Jewish law Maimonides, Mishnah Torah, Torah, Shulchan Arach, the court of Jewish law, and Mishnah Brurim. Rav Chaim toiled day and night, saying that the mental energy expounded and expended on Torah studies is more physically taxing than digging ditches or laying bricks. Few people managed to study these intricate works in a lifetime, but Rav Chaim completed them all every single year. This year, he completed the annual cycle one day before his patira, before his passing. Rav Chaim had a Google-level command of the entire canon of Jewish writings at his fingertips. He was once asked how many times the name Moshe appears in the Torah. Do you think any of us could figure that out? Rav Chaim made a quick calculation and replied 614. The questioner countered that a computer search says the total is 616. Rav Chaim explained how the computer erred. While the name Moshe Mem Shin He is written 614 times, the same letter combination appears two additional times in Shemos 12.4 and Devarim 15.2 to spell other words. The Kanyevskis had a small apartment and the children slept in a room filled to their brim with beds. When a wealthy visitor once offered to buy them a spacious house, they declined, explaining that it encouraged people to see that economic hardship does not preclude devotion to Torah study. Rokhaim published dozens of volumes that are modern classics, including Derech Hamuna, Derech Chachma, Shona Halachos, and Ta'ama Dukra. On one occasion, Rokhaim was composing complex treatise on the kosher species of locusts in Vayikra. He was having difficulty understanding the limb structure of kosher locusts when suddenly a locust jumped through the window into his apartment, literally into his apartment, and landed on his desk. Can you imagine? He examined the legs, obtained the necessary information, and the locust went on its way and departed. So Hashem literally sent the creature he needed at that moment, exact moment, Ashkach HaPratis from Hashem, to let him study exactly what he needed. Rav Chaim authored tens of thousands of rabbinic response on nearly every conceivable aspect of Torah each week. He would sequester himself in a room with stacks of hundreds of letters and patiently respond to every single one. Due to the sheer volume and to maximize his time, Rav Chaim's responses were record-breaking brief, often limited to one word in microscopic letters, occasionally adding a reference to the Jewish codes. Rav Chaim made an art out of brevity to save precious seconds. When delivering words of encouragement, he invented the word "buha an acronym for Blessings and Success, bracha Slacha, buha. As the world's most learned sage of Chaim, has insight into every possible dilemma, personal, communal, and global. Despite his reluctance to take a position of public leadership, tens of thousands of people from around the world, politicians, business people, educators, and foreign dignitaries flock to consult with Chaim. Serving as Sandik is considered a merit for becoming wealthy, And someone once asked Rav Chaim, if you serve so often in Sambik, why aren't you wealthy? He replied that wealth, quote-unquote, is not limited to money, and quoted his father that wealth is attained by publishing Torah commentaries, And and he published many, many, many. So really, he was very spiritually wealthy. Rav Chaim added his own opinion that grandchildren are a source of tremendous wealth. What a beautiful example. A beautiful example of real expertise, real knowledge in Torah and Torah matters. Halavai, we should all have an iota of experience and expertise in any small area of Torah, and any small area of Torah matters. H.com points out with Rabbi Mayer, someone who has expertise should be extra careful to present his or her service without revealing any tricks of the trade. Even giving gifts can be seen as a talent, and one can have a knack or expertise for it. H.com points out, giving gifts is a wonderful way to express gratitude. When you give someone a gift, think about what this person would actually appreciate. What does this person need? What would this person like to have, even if he doesn't actually feel a need for it now? When you see an item you feel would be great to give someone as a gift, ask yourself, who am I grateful to that would appreciate this as a gift? That would appreciate this as a gift. Books are a great gratitude gifts. A book can be read over and over and over again. And even when it's read only once, the book on the bookshelf is a frequent reminder that you are grateful. There are many inexpensive items that would be greatly appreciated as a thank you gift. If you want to make sure that you'll be buying someone a gift that it's something that this person will truly appreciate receiving, think of someone you can consult. You might ask someone to ask for you, is there something that you probably would not buy for yourself but would appreciate someone buying for you as a gift. A general rule is to keep in mind, don't just get someone a gift that you personally would like to receive. Give what you think this individual might like and would like to receive. The author once met someone who was considered an expert gift giver. How did you develop your expertise? She asked the person. And they answered, I keep asking people, what are the gifts that you have appreciated the most? I even ask this to strangers I meet in lines at stores. I've heard a tremendous amount of people answer this question, this has given her a strong sense of what different people appreciate as gifts. So expertise can be seen in any area and in any way, just use it for Torah, for mitzvahs for good. Rabbi Gavin points out on H.com, why is the Torah called a song? Rabbi Yitzhak Herzog gives a novel explanation, in virtually all fields of Torah of study, Not Torah said, but in all fields of regular study, a person who is uninitiated in that discipline does not derive any pleasure from hearing a theory or an insight concerning that field of study. For example, a physicist will derive great pleasure from hearing a novel interpretation or insight into the field of physics, since it is his field of expertise. However, someone who has no significant knowledge of physics will be totally unmoved by the very same insight. This concept applies to many other fields. However, an exception to this concept is found in music, for music can be appreciated on many levels. As Rabbi Yisachar Fran explains, when Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is played, regardless of whether one is a concert master or a plain, simple person, there is something one can get out of it. Music is something that everyone on his or her own level can enjoy. Everyone can relate to music. Rabbi Herzog says this is why the Torah is called Shira, a song. Everyone on his level can appreciate the Torah. On the one hand, a great Torah scholar can learn the opening verse in the Torah, Boratius Barah Elokim, in the beginning God created, and see great wisdom therein. Indeed, one of the greatest scholars of all time, the Vilna Gon, only learned Hamish at the end of his life because he can use his vast knowledge of the oral law and mysticism and see it all ex- exalted words in the Torah. Yet, on the other hand, one can be a five-year-old child just beginning to read and learn the very same words, Boratius Barah Elokim, and also gain something from it. Every person on his own level can have an appreciation for Torah. Therefore, the verse aptly refers to Torah when it says, And now, write for yourself the song, Kis V'Lachem Et Hazos. Write this as a song. However, it seems an additional point needs to be made with regard to the idea that any person on any level can relate to the Torah. Returning to the analogy of music, even though it is true that a simple person can enjoy Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, it is also true that a concertmaster will appreciate on a far higher And a more sophisticated level, noting the numerous details that make it such an admired piece of music. Same applies to the Torah. A child can enjoy learning Bereishis Parlokim, but a more mature person can appreciate it far more. And a Torah scholar can appreciate it on a whole different level. As a person grows up, he is responsible to develop his understanding of the Torah as his comprehension and knowledge increase. This idea should apply to all facets of Torah, such as Gemara, Chumash, Jewish thought, and the like. Unfortunately, it is not uncommon that a person who grows exponentially in his approach to Gemara learning does not make anything like the same progress in the realm of Chumash and Jewish thought. A person can be learning Gemara in depth with all the complex commentators, yet he does not advance at all from the understanding of Chumash that he developed as a young child in school. After Avraham fails to persuade God not to wipe out Sodom, the Torah makes a seemingly superfluous comment: Hashem departed when he had finished speaking to Avraham, and Avraham returned to his place. Avram Baba Makom, or Holechla Makom, whatever the Torah uses. Avram returned to his place. What is the significance of the fact that Avram returned to his place? The scribe proceeded to ask the affirmation question as the significance of the fact that Avram returned to his place. He answered with the following words What this means is that the Torah wants to teach us that one has done everything in order to save a situation, and the goal has not been achieved, one must implement, and Avraham returned to his place. Avraham returned to his place. One has to go back and resume the activity that one is obligated to engage in, continuing as though nothing untoward has happened. Under no circumstances whatsoever does lack of success justify a person giving giving way and being unable to carry on this holy work. We can all relate to the Torah. We just have to find that which resonates within us, Pirkei and Navi for me, what speaks to us, what we can rush with, and what we can run with, and what we can become more of an expert in. So find that aspect and run with it. Rabbi Black points out on H.com, Malcolm Gladwell in his best-selling book, Outliers, The Story of Success, makes note of a remarkable discovery. Researchers have settled on what they believe is the magic number for true expertise, 10,000 hours. No one can ever really master any task become truly proficient in any undertaking without the painstaking effort of constant repetition. Practice isn't the thing you do once you're good, Gladwell says, it's the thing you do that makes you good. There's a physical as well as mental basis for the emphasis of practice. The power of habit establishes a pattern of behavior that becomes hardwired into our nervous system. When Ram Baum Maimonides was asked whether it was preferable in dispensing charity to give $100 to one person, very famous, or a single dollar to 100 needy individuals, he ruled the latter, simply because that would make a far greater habit out of our act of giving. People hate to be criticized. No one wants to be reminded of flaws. We prefer not to even admit that we have them. Interesting that one of the most important roles of a coach to turn a good athlete into a superstar is to specifically find the flaws which stand in the way of perfection. It's an idea that Rabbi Noah Weinberg, a brilliantly analyzed in his masterly 48 Ways to Wisdom. He points out how strange it is that most people see criticism as a personal attack, immediately triggering all kinds of defense mechanisms. In the Torah instruction to give criticism is placed right next to the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, as well as the prohibition against standing idly by while another person is in need. Don't stand by while your brother's in need. Don't stand by and see your brother's blood spill of God forbid. Don't be a bystander make sure to stand up and help those around you. That comes from Bayikram. Echoing the very words of Bode Miller, the Havdel Rabbi Weinberg wrote, criticism is not a personal attack, but a way to reach your Olympic-level potential. The Kuzuri, one of the most famous works of the medieval Jewish philosopher and poet Judah Halevi, teaches that the definition of a truly great person is one who has complete control over his mind with the ability to visualize events by way of total planning. By that, he meant mental rehearsal in advance for unexpected roadblocks in life. Preparation not only for the expected, but training for the unpredictable, which invariably become part of the unwelcome script of our lives. This reminds me of the idea of Habdom, of the eight-time swimmer winner, Michael Phelps. You know, when he was working for his eighth medal, his goggles actually got inundated with water and he couldn't really see. But he trained for this. He knew exactly how many strokes he needed. He persevered. He used mental acuity, mental visual imagery to get through it, and he still won, and got his eighth medal. How crazy, how awesome, because you have to know, and you have to be involved, and you have to realize the truly great person. You have to prepare. You have to go and know what comes, even if it's unexpected, especially if it's unexpected. Prepare for it and deal with it. Phelps could have easily given up, but he said, no, I'm going to persevere, and I'm going to do it by my memory, and he still won. If you will it, it is no dream were the inspiring words of Theodor Herzl, which in no small measure turned a 2,000-year-old dream into a reality of the modern state of Israel. Reality is wrong. Dreams are for real is the contemporary where we express the idea that motivated the prophets of Israel, the spokesman for God, who predicted a messianic era for a world which at the time worshipped war and violence. So rehearsal and practice are key for expertise in any area, but especially in Torah. We go through daf, we start it again. We go through all the Torah partials and do it again. This is a key to greater expertise. We do a Hadron and we say we're going to do it again. We go and we go and we keep at it and we practice and we practice and that's how we can get expertise, especially in Torah. Rabbi blach also points out on H.com what is considered real success. What is real expertise? What is most important in life? Too bad one of the wealthiest men in the world didn't learn the lesson until it was too late. Sam Walton was the multi-billionaire CEO of Walmart, the fourth largest U.S. corporation. As he was lying on his deathbed, he struggled to get out his last three words, on earth. He had given his life for his business. In that area, he succeeded beyond anyone's wildest dreams, yet it was at a price he hardly spent any time with his wife With his children and with his grandchildren, he didn't allow himself the moments of loving interaction, of cuddling a grandchild on his lap, of playing and laughing and rejoicing with his loved ones, of really sitting and having a wonderful date with his wife. His final three words, I blew it! He had the billions, but by his own admission, he had failed. Don't fail. Don't blow it. Make sure to get your mission, to get your expertise, but to juggle it all the while with your... Family, I don't understand how people are in professions that come home at nine, ten o'clock at night lawyers, accountants, and sometimes doctors. I think it's crazy. I would much rather take a field, take a position, which I did as an OT working for the city with wonderful, beautiful hours because you cannot make up those hours with your wife and kids. No one ever looks back and said, You know, I wish I took a job that made much more money. People always forget saying, I wish I spent more time with my wife, with my kids. I wish I was able to be involved in more things. And instead of chasing the rat race of money, materialism doesn't come with you. Nothing comes with you. What stays with you are the memories, the happiness, the Torah, the tzedakah, the chesed that you do. So I'm happy to leave the house at 7 and come back by 4. I love that it's a 7-hour workday and the hours of of commuting. If I could cut it down even more, that would be great. But it can't be that I come home at 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. That's crazy. And then I leave at 6, 7, 8 in the morning. That's crazy. What time are you spending with your wife and kids? Find your mission, find your expertise, use it, but do it in a proper and more functional manner. And what a man points out on H.com in relation to understanding your expertise and your abilities and to recognize your limitations, our generation is told we can be anything we want to be. A very mundane experience recently reminded her it isn't true. There was something she wanted on the top shelf in a store. She couldn't reach it, no matter how hard she tried, how much she stretched, no matter what she did, she was forced to search the store to find someone who could reach it. It's not such an infre- infrequent occurrence for her, not to the store owners. think of note to the store owners, think of short customers, but she accommodated herself to the reality of the situation. It wasn't such a big deal, but it made a point that there are some things that she could not be. There are some things that we cannot be, like a woman's basketball player for herself. She's also pretty close to Dondev, she explains, which has precluded her from becoming a great musician despite hours of practice. She doesn't have the gift of abstract thought necessary for physicists, mathematicians, or philosophers. The list goes on and on for each of us as well. But enough about that. We all have limitations, and that's okay. When the ethics of the fathers picks up us and joins us to be happy with our lot, it means more than our material possessions. It means all the circumstances of our lives and includes our particular strengths and weaknesses, talents and lack thereof. Even our limitations, because this is the way we were created. This is the way. These are the opportunities in front of us. It's important to recognize our limitations professionally. If we have a serious issue with our eyes, we prefer to visit an ophthalmologist instead of a general practitioner. If we have a serious psychological issue, we prefer someone with a degree and experience, not just a good friend. Likewise, if we're in a position of counseling others, it's important to know when we refer out, when we have to refer out to the people with special expertise in the field. We have grown up thinking that limitations are bad because they are, well, limiting. Limitations are neither bad nor good. They're just an expression of reality, a reality that we need to accept and embrace. And once we recognize our limitations are and, and are at peace with them, then we really know the parameters within which we can truly grow and flourish. That is a tremendous gift. We may spend our lives struggling to be something or someone we are incapable of being. We may spend our lives unhappy that we haven't achieved certain completely unrealistic goals. Or we can be happy with who we are and work with the strengths and abilities we actually have as opposed to the ones we wish we did. We can be miserable that we weren't the visionary who created a business or organization or just enjoy being the ones who is able to turn that vision into a concrete reality. We can be unhappy that we aren't the life of the party or enjoy the meaningful conversations we have with the few people standing near us. We can wish we were the fun mom always making up games and projects for our kids, or we could focus on the security and stability and time that our children are getting from us. There are so many things we could wish for. We could live in a constant state of dissatisfaction, or we could try to abide by the words in Pirke Aus and accept who we are, be happy with what we are and what we have. If the Almighty had wanted us to be taller, He would have made us that way. If He wanted us to be able to sing or dance on Broadway for those who can't, He would have given them those skills and those breaks. So I guess He wants us to be just the way we are. Not talking about character flaws that we can and must work on and eliminate. That's one of the main things we're here in the world to do, work on our traits. We're talking about the boundaries of what we can accomplish given the abilities and the talents and the skills that we do have and the ones we don't. It's initially disappointing to realize you can't be anything you want to, but it's ultimately freeing and it's an ultimate ultimate gift. As we think about freedom this week, think about how you're free to actually pursue that which you're supposed to do, that which you're supposed to be an expert in. Free to admit and keep in life what's in your mind. A reason to say thank you to Hashem, to give us and direct us and guide us to what we're supposed to do. Not what we think we're supposed to do for the parents or for friends or others, but what we're supposed to do with the gifts, the hints that Hashem tells us. We know we have limitations. Accept them. Keep them in your life and in your conscience. Understand. Don't be afraid to admit and keep them in life and on your mind. As Passover, Pesach is coming upon us, it behooves us to think about Pesach itself. As Aish points out, Aish.com, the gift of inner freedom on Passover and Pesach is a freebie. On Saturday night, God bestows on all of us and all the Jews the possibility of redemption from whatever inner bondage holds them. It's like winning the lottery. Of course, to win the lottery, you have to exert yourself to the extent of going to a lottery booth and buying a ticket, looking up the winning number, and showing up to claim your prize. To become worthy of the exodus from Egypt, from the Yitzias Mitzrayim, our ancestors had to exert themselves to the extent of slaughtering the Passover offering, the carbon Pesach, and smearing its blood, its dumb on their doorposts. Today, to become worthy of the liberation afforded by Pesach, you have to exert yourself to the extent of attending a Seder, getting the house ready, eating the requisite amounts of matzah, drinking the four cups of wine, carefully fulfilling the other mitzvahs of the Seder and of Pesach. To claim your Passover gift of inner freedom to other steps are necessary. Decide before the Seder, what am I enslaved to? The possible answers are many. Anger, peer approval, materialism, jealousy, self-destructive habits, fear of commitment, impulsivity, resentment, laziness, desire to control, dishonesty, a critical nature as demanding as any taskmaster, and so much more. Then during the Seder, as you eat your matzah in silence, commit to striving to accomplish that change and appeal to God to free you from that particular bondage. This does not preclude working hard every day to overcome that bondage, but achieving true freedom requires admitting that what really catalyzes the process of inner-life liberation is the recognition that Hashem, only Hashem, is the source of that liberation and of everything else. Don't be a slave to society. Don't be a slave to your work, to your salary, to materialism, to social media, and the nourish kite around you. Be a real, free person to decide what to do with your time, with your life to develop your mission and to develop your expertise. h.com points out two last stories from the Sano saffron. Barry was home alone when he heard the doorbell ring. Doo-doo-doo. Doo-doo-doo. If you have a ring like we do, you know what I'm talking about. Doo-doo-doo. He ran downstairs to get it and opened the door, but no one was there. At least that's what he thought at first. Then he saw a scared-looking younger kid squeezed against the corner railing of his front porch, looking like he wished he could slip between two of the bars. He was holding a clipboard and a colorful cardboard box. Yeah, you rang, Barry asked. Uh, um, you, you, you want to buy something for candy for charity? He, the kid blurted out. Huh? The boy, looking even more scared, handed Barry one of the flyers he was carrying. Barry read it. Do I want to buy some candy for charity? Why didn't you say so? Hmm, let's see. I'll take one of these, he said, pointing to a picture of one of the colorful candy bars displayed on the flyer and pulling a dollar out of his wallet. You, you mean you really want to buy that one? The kid asked, the first hint of light glinting in his darkened eyes. Sure, why not? Barry asked. It's just that you're the first person who said yes to me all day, the kid said with a cautious smile as he dug the candy bar out of the full box he'd been holding under his arm. Really? Gee, that's too bad, Barry said as he unwrapped the bar and took a bite. But you know I'm not surprised, he added between shoes. Noticing the kid's confused look, he went on. If you want to sell anything, you have to believe in yourself. Myself? Yeah, you have to believe in yourself and in what you're doing. That's called self-confidence, feeling like you're good and you're doing something good. When I opened the door, you looked like you were afraid you were bothering me or something. Um, that's what I thought, the kid nodded in agreement. But why, Barry asked, throwing up his hands, you were doing me and everyone you call in the biggest favor in the world. I was? Am? Sure. Barry took another bite of candy and grinned. Absolutely. Not only were you offering me an opportunity to do a good deed and give charity to the orphanage you're collecting for, you were also offering me this delicious treat to pick up my day. What could be better than that? Wow. Listen, from now on, remember what I just told you whenever you knock on someone's door, and I promise you'll make tons more sales, okay? Okay! The kid nodded enthusiastically. Barry was about to close the door when the boy took a confident step forward. So, since I'm doing you such a big favor, maybe you'll take two? He asked with a wink. Now you got it, and got me! Barry clapped his hands and laughed. Ha ha ha! Pulling out another dollar bill, he sent the smiling kid off a little bit richer in money and a whole lot richer in life. Even one small act can lead another to seeing good and accomplishing great things on a mission, even like selling candy and being really good at it, being an expert at it. One last story from Nesano Safran on com. Okay, this piece must fit over here in the corner. No, maybe maybe up here. If Larry didn't know how big the number 1,000 was before he started his jigsaw puzzle, he certainly knew now it was a lot. Yeah, that's right, but now what about this one? He loved the colorful picture of all the birds and animals at the jungle watering hole on the box cover and begged his parents to get it for him. But he was a little shocked to find out how small the pieces were. Just one elephant chunk was made up of five pieces. Larry, are you coming down for dinner tonight? Yeah, okay, Mom, just working on my puzzle. After world's record speed dinner, the boy was back to work. It was his fifth straight evening at it, and although it seemed impossible when he first started, he really was getting there. Let's see, this pink piece must be part of the flamingo's wing. Wait, no, it's the lion's mouth. Now this one's part of the sky. No, nope, maybe the water. In fact, Larry couldn't remember ever trying so hard at anything. Unlike his brainy brother, for him, scores seemed to go in one side of his brain and out the other, and he'd come to the conclusion a long time ago That for him, unlike his athletic sister, sports was something you watched. But this was fun, challenging, and best of all, he was slowly but surely succeeding. Too bad it was just a dumb puzzle and not something worthwhile. Wow, it's really getting late, Larry thought, as he looked at the puzzle, which by now took up nearly his whole desk. But there was so little left to do. If he could just hang on a little longer. Okay, this piece goes here, and this one here finished! Exhausted, Larry's head hardly hit the pillow and he was fast asleep. He got home from school the next day and went up to his room. Why did something look different? Then he noticed his puzzle. It was gone. Larry desperately searched his room. How could a thousand-piece puzzle disappear into thin air? Maybe his mom or the housekeeper had just broken it apart while cleaning his room? He struggled. Why shouldn't they? It was just a dumb puzzle. He shrugged. Uh, He shuffled down to the kitchen to get a snack. Hi, Larry. Did you notice anything new around here? His mom asked, smiling. Oh, you mean in my room? No, in the den. Now she was smiling more. Larry walked into the den and his eyes turned to this, turned the size of CD discs when he saw that on the wall, right in between his sister's swim racing certificate and his brother's science award was his puzzle, mounted like a picture behind glass in a beautiful wooden frame. Wow, Mom, thanks. It looks so good, but why? It was only a puzzle. Oh, no, it's much more than that, she said. It's setting out to do something, working hard on it for days. And not giving up, and that, even more than the beautiful picture we'll all enjoy, is something worth celebrating. Larry hugged his mom and looked up at his hard work hanging on the wall. It was true. He'd succeeded at what he'd set out to do. Could even be, now that he'd done that once, he could do it again. Every act, every field, every study, every idea, every profession starts with a single step, a single piece, a single decision. Practice, practice, practice makes perfect. Being involved, stepping one foot forward, one act forward, one decision, one movement makes us work at something and keep at something, persevere at something until we're finally experts at that something. Work at it and keep at it. Don't be a slave to society, to work, to salary, to materialism, to social media and Narskot around you. Don't give in to what your parents say you have to do as a job, what your friends say you have to do as a job. What your siblings say is a job? Listen to your heart. Listen to your mind. Listen to the hints Hashem sends you. When really, you know what to do. Rabbi Niven points out, what were the five or ten most pleasurable, most enjoyable things in your entire life? If you had a billion dollars in endless time, six hours, what would you do? I know what I would do. Live radio. What would you do? What could you do? What could your mission be? What could your expertise be? Think about what to do with your life. Be a real free person as we come to Pesach. As we come to being a free people this week, think about true freedom, doing what you're supposed to do with your mission, with your expertise in life. Be a real free person, Zaman Chay as we're a free nation, coming to the holiday about freedom. Be that free person to decide what to do with your time, what to do with your life, what to do to develop your mission, to, to to develop your expertise, what do you love, what is your passion, what could you do? If you didn't worry about time, you didn't worry about money, if you love trains, why are you in a bank? If you love the zoo, why are you working in a Taco Bell? Or the Kosher and Kosher Delight, or Chickies. What are you doing with your life? Be that free person to do what you want, what you can with your life. Have that mission. Have that extra expertise. Do good. Be good. Do good at it. Be good at it. Make the world a better place. If everybody could follow that mold, if everybody could be involved in following what they're supposed to do, having the proper expertise, contributing everything they could do, maybe we could finally be Zohar to have Mashiach come and Eliyahu come, and maybe we could finally have that redemption speedily in our days, and may that day be Pesach, and may it be today, this year, and so may it be its will. From Hashem, Amen. Join us next time as we talk a life lesson and we talk a topic procession with some practical lessons here on the TTL, and I'm your host, Tani.